Hi, this is Dr. Mercola, and welcome to our Take Control of Your Health podcast, in which we bring you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. This next interview is part of my Best of series, which features some of the most popular interviews with leading health experts. So thank you for listening. Now let's get started with this week's program to help you and your family take control of your health. Hi, this is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we're joined by Mara Khan, who wrote the book Vegan Betrayal. And she's really put together uh, an incredible story, her own personal journey from being a vegan to doing exploration and finding out the facts. And it took her many years to write this book. And it's really the best book I've ever read that covers the entire issue. So we're pleased and honored to have her with us today. So welcome. And thank you for joining us, Mara. Thank you very much, Dr. McCall. It's great to be here. So I'm wondering if you could enlighten us as to your journey, because it really is uh, quite uh, empowering to see. We, we, have, we find many people who, who choose, and heard of many stories of people who choose to be vegetarian and then, or vegan, and then have health complications. But you, your story goes really far beyond that because you've done an exhaustive and comprehensive review of the facts. So maybe you can share your journey with us now. Okay, sure. Um, first of all, I'd like to say that even though my book is titled Vegan Betrayal, I do respect all vegans and what they're trying to do. And my own journey uh, led me to vegetarianism. And I know that many vegans are now, um, who once were vegetarians became vegans, I know that many of them are uh, suffering from diminished strength and faltering health. And I think this is a topic which has been swept under the rug and it's not being openly discussed in the vegan community. I think it's very important that we start this discussion and I hope that this book will help kickstart that really important dialogue. So you became interested in vegetarianism as a, as a teenager and did some international travel and had some interesting journeys. So maybe, can you elaborate on that and what motivated you to write the book? Sure. Uh, yes, I became a vegetarian at age 19 while traveling in Europe. I met the very first vegetarian I'd ever known. Uh, you have to remember this was in the 1970s. I grew up in uh, the Midwest where uh, vegetarian vegetarianism was pretty much unknown and uh, veganism totally unheard of at that time. But like many of uh, today's vegans, I became an instant convert, overnight convert, once I, I met this woman who was a beautiful specimen of humanity, extremely healthy. She was a few years older than I, from California. Uh, I met her in Paris. She had just bicycled the last month from her hometown near San Francisco up the California coast all the way across Canada. Uh, I've flown into London, uh, took the ferry to France, and then arrived in Paris on her 10-speed uh, motorbicon. And she was gorgeous, she was healthy, she was beautiful, and she was a vegetarian. And I fell head over heels for the diet based on um, who she was at that time. So instant convert like many vegans today. Uh, up to that time, I, I had eaten a very meat-based diet in uh, the Midwest, a lot of pork and hot dogs and hamburgers and the like. And then you started your journey. Well, but before we go into more details, I think I'd like to mention that I don't think either of us, I can't speak for you, but I just, I'll let you chime in, would disagree with anyone who chooses to eat this way for philosophical or spiritual or ethical, ethical concerns. I mean, that's their choice. And you can't really, that's not arguable from my perspective. The, the only challenge is, is when they're doing it for purported health benefits and that's where I think there's some serious disagreements and some serious confusion that will hopefully will clear up today. Yes, I agree. I became a vegetarian for ethical reasons actually and I, I totally am with vegans on that count. I believe that 
uh, ethical reason is probably the primary, it is, surveys show the primary reason that people convert to vegetarianism or veganism. Um, I do present, however, some arguments toward the end of the, end of the book mm -hmm. that uh, veganism is not the only ethical diet, and um, I also uh, present some arguments, a lot of arguments that it is not a historically validated uh, diet, but yes, for ethical and philosophical reasons, it makes perfect sense to become a vegan. Now, just so uh, you understand and the audience, at that time, in the 1970s, veganism was largely unheard of. That's why I became a vegetarian. It may be that on the coast, San Francisco or New York, there were some vegans in the U.S., but it really didn't get a stronghold here until the 1980s and then definitely in the 1990s. So, uh, but I did become a vegetarian for ethical reasons. Yeah, and you, your book does a really nice job of reviewing the history the story of veganism because it just didn't start in the 70s. It start it was long preceded by that. But it's interesting with respect to the historical context. If you look at it from a health perspective, there doesn't appear to be a single population in the history of the world who survived in a plant-based mm -hmm. diet exclusively. So maybe you can expand on that because I think that's really uh, an important argument that uh, you know seeing this historical evidence of what our ancestors ate to survive would, would make pretty good sense that there's a high likelihood that we're going to thrive on a similar diet. Uh, that's right. I did a thorough research of the history of vegetarianism. Uh, in fact, I spent almost six years researching this book. I'm a, a journalist, and so I love to do research. I love to investigate. I love to find out the, you know, dig deep and find out causes and reasons. And, and so in studying the vegan diet for six years, I um, not only was uh, swamped with uh, all the nutrition studies and research and all the best journals from Europe and America, I also looked into the history. Uh, so at this point, it's really important that we distinguish between vegetarianism and veganism. Um, vegetarianism has a very long and honorable history. It goes back at, at least 2,500 years um, to Greece, and much further than that in the Indus Valley, India, and that part of the, the world. Um, it has proven itself to be a viable diet uh, health-wise. It's lasted this long. Um, it's, it's ingrained in uh, the culture of, for instance, India, even though they're only less than 40% are vegetarian, surprisingly. And even in the northern parts of India and the Kashmir regions, uh, they eat meat because of the climate is, is so different in the mountainous regions of North India. So vegetarian has a very long and noble history with verified health results. However, veganism, as I got into this research, veganism is a non-historical diet, and that's one of the main points I make in the book. It is not verified. Its health benefits are not verified. Uh, there were scattered enclaves of religious people that lived cloistered lives who did follow a vegan diet. Uh, there's some evidence of that throughout history, but these were very, very tiny populations, uh, mostly monk-type people living away from society. Uh, veganism as a popular diet uh, is very, very new, very recent, and these kind of numbers that we're seeing now, they estimate about uh, two or three million in uh, probably a couple million in the U.S. I mean, the estimates I've seen really vary widely. It's it's hard to pinpoint that, but probably a few million now in the U.S. These numbers have never been seen in history, mm -hmm. and um, really didn't get started until uh, as a popular movement until 1944 in England when Donald Watson coined the word veganism. So it's actually a new word, a new movement. And uh, he wanted to move the argument away from health, vegetarianism was mostly about health, to one of ethics. 
that was his main motive. So it's really a modern, almost happening veganism, you know, and its name is was uh, coined in 1944, and it happened when Donald Watson uh, visited a farm. He was about 14 years old, and he, 14 years old, he witnessed the slaughtering of a pig, and he was absolutely horrified, uh, and he wanted to immediately change his diet and everybody else's in the world, which is pretty much the vegan um, goal to have this become eventually a worldwide diet. I think it would be helpful to provide some definitions here because uh, veganism is pretty straightforward. There's exclusion of all animal products of any type, uh, but there's a wide variety of vegetarianism and, and there's a there's a strong likelihood. I mean, part of the confusion here is that many vegetarians and potentially some vegans in the early stages are appear to be quite healthy. Uh, that's because there are lots of great aspects of a vegetarian diet, which I'll, I'll mention in a bit. But but for definition purposes to help us understand the perspectives, maybe you can d d provide a definition of vegetarianism versus veganism. Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, as I said, vegetarianism has roots in the West, all the way back to Pythagoras, he's called the father of Western vegetarianism. In southern Greece, he had a school there of intellectuals and philosophers. And at that time, vegetarianism uh, included uh, dairy and eggs, which it does today, but it also included fish. There are many references to Pythagoras and uh, eating fish, and his followers were. Uh, actually encouraged to eat meat at certain times. Uh, he had two groups of followers, the philosopher types who were ascetics. Um, they in general did not eat meat, but his uh, public followers, you know, her working people in open society, raising families, working the fields, uh, doing hard physical labor, he um, pretty much insisted they eat some meat uh, because they needed the caloric load and the energy to do their everyday physical work. And um, so the definition back then included fish, and today's uh, vegetarians do not want to include fish in the definition of their diet. They want that out. They want to call those people pescatarians. Mm -hmm. And um, they are limited to, of course, all plant food and uh, dairy and eggs would make them a vegetarian. Well, okay, well, vegan, of course, excludes all animal products. Well, thank you for uh, elucidating that fact. <clears throat> and under that definition, was that Pythagoras that you said that you referred to? Was it Pythagoras or in Greece? Yes, Pythagoras okay. was the father right, so, of vegetarian. Yeah, so by that, by Pythagoras's definition, uh, I would be a vegetarian <clears throat> because I pretty much believe that that's that's pretty close to the ideal diet. Uh, and it's really sad that m contemporary vegetarians have excluded and actually become discriminated. And that's a whole other aspect of your book in that there's this. Uh, egalitarianism in vegetarianism that they look down on different levels and they're not the best vegetarian oh, or vegan so yes. so th they really frown upon pescatarians and, and from a new, you know my, my passion has been optimizing food to or, or, or really identifying foods to optimize health and mm -hmm. I'm absolutely convinced that fish are one of the healthiest foods on the planet it is the most amazing food, primarily because of its content of DHA, which is a 22-carbon fat that is just an absolutely essential part of health. If you have low DHA levels, you're just—it's almost physiologically uh, impossible to be healthy because it's such an imp important part of energy generation at, at the molecular level, down to the mitochondrial membranes and a whole variety of other components. You need DHA. You need it for converting. Uh, there's even a lot of quantum energy, quantum mechanics going on with respect to its ability to capture light and, and integrate it into our system. So if you're deficient, that's a problem. Now, of course, industrial concerns have contaminated most of the fish of the world, so you have to eat really low on the food chain, which is like anchovies or sardines, uh, you know, or clean fish, which is uncommon but somewhat available in the wild Alaskan fish. Uh, but if you exclude that from your diet, you're, you're just not going to be healthy. And now, a lot of the vegetarians or vegans will say, well, we can get our DHA from 
marine algae. And yes, it's DHA, but I don't think it's the same thing. It's just not integrated into the food, and you just don't absorb it as well, even though they claim it is. So uh, I think there's a, you know, and then of course there's a whole variety of other nutrients. But for the most part, I just eat fish. I have a little dairy and virtually no raw or milk, raw milk or otherwise, but I have uh, butter which I think is enormously helpful and a whole variety of, of healthy fats and uh, occasional meat that's that's ethically raised and not CAFO you know and I think that's healthy it just have to be careful and this is this is one of the points I wanted to emphasize I think one of the reasons why vegetarianism is so healthy at least according to the Pythagoras model is because it's relatively low lower in protein and when you have high levels of protein if you're eating too much meat CAFO or otherwise it doesn't matter you are going to stimulate powerful biochemical pathways that are going to move you towards disease. You know, yes, you can get big and bulky. You can win bodybuilding contests if you train properly. But that doesn't mean you're going to be healthy and, and you're going to live a long life. Uh, because there's, there's two ways you can go. You can improve your longevity or you can improve muscle anabolic uh, pathways. So that I think that's a big reason why a lot of vegetarians aren't are, are pretty healthy is because they're lowering lowering the, uh, the the protein. But and they get a lot of good vegetables, obviously. Although they should not be obvious because you can be a vegetarian and eat pretty lousy food. Uh, it's real easy to do that. It's more difficult to be a vegetarian and eat very healthy food and be and be healthy. So maybe you can comment on uh, what I the, the mouthful I just just offered. <laughs> Well, I agree totally. I uh, when when I returned to being an omnivore, I it was with fish. I I started eating plentiful fish, and my health skyrocketed almost immediately. And um, I think there's a very good reason that Pythagoras and ate some fish from time to time. It was plentiful in in the Mediterranean region where he lived. And no, it wasn't, wasn't contaminated. <laughs> and it wasn't contaminated, and there's reason he prescribed it to his uh, everyday followers in the towns, and um, that reason is probably, as you say, DHA. Um, but there's other good reasons to eat fish. Mm -hmm. um, it ha you know, full of vitamins and vitamin E, and uh, it also has uh, all the omega-3 fatty acids, and DHA is really a problem with vegan, vegans, and sometimes, excuse me, sometimes it's, I call it vegan, sometimes vegans. I've heard it both both ways. Uh, vegetarian, vegetables, vegan, it, it makes more sense to me. So, but uh, vegan is usually how you hear uh, called. Um, but yes, I eat plentiful sardines. I mean, I eat sardines like every other day. And the rush of, of powerful energy I get from them, I cannot find anywhere in the plant world. Yeah, yeah you had you had an you interesting had, story in your book. How you? I think you worked in Seattle in your book. Pike, Seattle, Pike, Pike, Fish, Pike, Fish Market. Uh huh. Yes. And so maybe you can just share that story and how it just like the lights went on once you started getting these uh, essential fentures into your brain. Oh, okay. Um, Actually, there were. That was probably up in Alaska. I okay. I lived and worked, I lived and worked up in Alaska in my twenties, uh, in a, a a fish plant which uh, brought in plentiful salmon for six months. At the time, I was a vegetarian, and I was a suffering vegetarian. Uh, my strength was diminished. My muscles were. Uh, diminishing also, and I do think that low protein is a problem for vegans, not vegetarians or vegans. Too low protein, uh, they, some of them are down to the 8 to 12 percent percentage of being protein. Too low protein will cause muscle wasting, and um, and actually I talked to uh, a metabolic expert, Dr. Diane Schwartz, and I interviewed her. Uh, she's based in Santa Barbara. She's a renowned metabolic expert, and she has treated many vegetarians and vegans uh, with muscle wasting. And um, what happens then is without 
enough protein in your diet, and there are risks for too low proteins, you actually start um, consuming your, your own uh, muscles. So in that sense, vegans are consuming flesh after all, their own, if they're not eating enough protein. And Dr. Schwartz being told me that she has treated every that every vegetarian and vegan she has treated has been metabolically damaged. Now that can come from low fat too. That was another. Yeah, I was just going to chime in on that. I think that's the reason why it's the really the low fat that's the issue, because if <clears throat> if you're having lots of carbohydrates, you're essentially become burning carbohydrates is your primary fuel and then if you shift that down to relatively low levels and and, veg and you can easily do that a vegetarian diet especially if having high or low net carb high fiber vegetables and high fat then your body's burning fat as its primary fuel and the reason I mentioned that is that once you enter those metabolic pathways in profoundly powerful protein sparing actions so that you can get by with a 9-10%. In fact, I only have 8% protein in my diet and I, I believe me, I'm not protein deficient. So, but that, that's because fat is my primary fuel. Mm -hmm. If I was burning carbs, I would not fare well at all. Right, and uh, if you look at metabolic individuality, some people do much better with a low protein diet than others. Some people do better with a higher fat diet. Some people do better with a higher carb diet. Proportionately, you know, there are extremes mm -hmm. that we all need to avoid. But yes, up in Alaska, I was a vegetarian. My strength was diminishing. I had, was nervous. I had insomnia. Um, I was kind of a wreck. And so one day in the plant, as these hundreds of thousands of fish were flying by, um, I just sort of went home that night after a 12-hour shift, shift, grabbed one of the uh, sockeye salmons, um, tucked it under my arm and went home and cooked it for the first time in like uh, 20 years. And the results were astounding once I started eating fish again. My energy just skyrocketed. I started sleeping better. My nerves became calm. I was... Uh, absolutely in intense gratitude to this first fish that I ate and the energy and you know the love for life again that it bestowed on me it was absolutely amazing and I heard talking to I did interviews with you know and talked to or heard the stories of hundreds of vegans and ex-vegans and almost invariably it was fish that they first ate mm -hmm to break their fast and uh, the same thing happened to them. So I yeah. agree. Fish it's is amazing food. DHA is critical and in fact uh, two of the uh, founders of veganism um, as they became older suffered from Parkinson's disease mm -hmm. and they um, had their DHA tested and it was zero. Their blood levels of DHA was zero. So that's not surprising, and it's it's really great to hear your experience with consuming what I believe is one of the healthiest foods on the planet, that sockeye salmon from wild Alaskan oh, salmon. Oh yeah, so it, was, it was it was the there was there was not a finer food on the planet that you could have been swimming. Maybe uh, salmon eggs, you know, or fish maybe, fish roe, salmon roe, but, but they're know. they're both great. You needed yes. it. Yes, and straight off the boat, it was as fresh as you can. Fresh as can be, yeah, yeah. So that, that is, uh, you know, and you you were wise enough to, uh, I guess, abandon your decades of uh, ethical considerations and and listen to your body because ultimately that's one of the barometers uh, that we have to help us gu help guide us on our journey to health. Is is our body's going to give us a signal? So. You can choose to ignore it, and many people do, as you did for decades. And, uh, and and then you have to suffer. You have to go in the gutter of health, and uh, you know, beat up, beat beat up pretty badly, and sometimes you have some pretty serious disease processes going on before you wake up and listen to what your body's seeking, been seeking to tell you all along. Yes, and and that is one of the primary points of my book: listen to your body. Uh, you can have the most beautiful ethical philosophy up in your head. And you want to follow it your whole life, as I did, but your body is giving you very strong messages otherwise. And and um, every person I've talked to who had to give up their ethical diet said it, it only happened at the moment their 
the mind became silent and they listened to their body and they took that bite of fish or whatever and the uh, return to sustained health happened it started at that moment for them yeah so I couldn't agree more and uh, maybe you can discuss some of the statistics of in the pro-vegan literature uh, and which tends not to really discuss the incredibly high dropout rate mm -hmm. of people who start to choose this type of lifestyle and then abandon it and it's that type of statistic is re rarely ever addressed in, in, in the vegan movement. That's right and that's why I think we need to have this discussion. Uh, the dropout rate for veganism is very high. We don't have statistics because people don't like to talk about it. Uh, some of them are ashamed and in fact people who leave a vegan community are often shamed by their mm -hmm. fellows because they believe that they ha are making a big mistake and that um, veganism is the only righteous way to go, it's the only way to eat and the whole world should be eating their way and uh, I've even read accounts of ex-vegans who describe it as kind of cultish and the shaming that ensues is very powerful and in fact um, one vegan told me that when she decided to go and buy some eggs for the first time in what, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, when she stood outside the store she felt uh, like the vegan cops were going to come and get her and her boyfriend who was a staunch vegan refused to go in with her and in fact he had told her at one point when he learned she was going to return to eating some animal food that he would, and she was suffering, her health was very much suffering, he told her that he would rather she were um, a suffering, continue to be a suffering vegan than to be a healthy meat eater. And so this to me was, you know, a perfect illustration of what I personally call reverse speciesism, preferring um, the health of an animal over the health of your fellow human being, and which is uh, really kind of a new thing, I think, in human history. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yes, it's not talked about very much in the vegan community, the high dropout rate, but uh, the numbers are large and the majority of them cite uh, vanishing health as the primary reason for leaving vegan, veganism. The second is uh, feeling ostracized from their, their cultural group or their family. But health, absolutely the number one reason uh, they leave and it's uh, estimated about 50% of vegans have already left because of uh, declining strength and declining health. Yeah, they were like you, they were wise and listened to their body. But let's now approach some of the um, arguments that's used to justify a, a animal-free existence, animal-free consumption existence. Uh, and it's based on what appears to be flawed information because they believe that they shouldn't have any animal products at all in their lives. This would include things as even leather, mm -hmm. not putting leather in your car. But what they fail to uh, integrate into their overall evaluation is that even in the consumption of an exclusively vegetable diet or vegetarian diet or vegan diet, that the, the very process of raising many of these foods involves killing a whole wide variety of animals. Not intentionally of course but it's an artifact of the the process of raising the food and uh, maybe you can discuss that because you know essentially it's there's no animal free lunch you're, you're going to, there, there's going to be going to be some type of catastrophe there and destruction of life and then there's this whole other issue of consciousness which we'll, we can discuss uh, next mm -hmm. yes that's uh, actually a quote from my book there's no animal free lunch mm -hmm. um, Unless you're growing all your food by yourself in a no-till organic situation uh, using hand tools, um, animals are destroyed in industrial agriculture. There are studies, research studies, from um, reputable scientists and agriculturists from universities which show a high 
mortality rate of wild animals in industrial fields. Modern agriculture uh, is very field intensive. There are like eight to ten trips through that field from sowing to final harvesting. So these machines are all the time. And I don't know if you've ever seen a giant harvester, but they are immense. Their tires are 42 inches wide, and there's like sometimes uh, four to eight tires. And so what these scientists found is that a lot of small mammals um, and rodents are getting killed in these fields. And it was the estimates are pretty high, actually, up to like 70% of all uh, present rodents and other small mammals killed in industrial fields. So that's one way um, that animals are being killed for plant food. And um, also they're killed uh, in, uh, by traps and in storage and transportation. A lot of animals are killed. And so uh, it's really kind of not true that vegan lifestyle has no connection to the death of animals especially in the agricultural world. Well, it's just not true that anyone can, you know, by that definition. And, and actually it goes to the, I guess, the next definition you need to address is what is an animal? You know, what is, where is this animal avoidance stop and where does it end? And, you know, there's this continuum, obviously. Does it stop at reptiles? Does it stop at insects? Mm -hmm. Does it, you know, or, or does it just stop at plants? Uh, because uh, a vegan driving down the highway at night is guaranteed, unless it's like the middle of the winter, to kill some insects on their windshield or their, the front of their grill of their car. Oh, yeah. yeah, And not just insects, but small snakes and rodents. Uh, mm -hmm. There are lots of road killing out there, especially after dusk, that we're all involved with. Not intentionally, of course, but no. nevertheless, it's still, still being done. It's an right. artifact of modern civilization. Yes, and this is one vegan argument that meat-eating is intentional, and if, when they are killing animals, it's unintentional. But, you know, a, a death is a death. The animal is, is dead, and so some vegans think that making that distinction isn't fair either. Yeah, and then I guess if you, maybe if you can address this consciousness issue, and at what point, and sometimes uh, pain, the, the ability to perceive pain is used as a criteria, and if that wasn't uh, there, that wouldn't be an issue. But then there's this whole other argument, which you, which a whole, you spent a whole chapter on, discussing the consciousness of plants. Mm -hmm. and, and I, I mean, obviously they're living. They, we wouldn't be able to use them as food if they weren't living. Well, I, I mean, at some point in their existence, many vegans, and I, I agree with the philosophy, you know, espouse the use of raw vegetables and raw foods rather than processed. So that's a good strategy. So, I mean, the, the plants are living at some point. Okay, well, you know, to be a vegan, you have to somewhere draw the line, what food you will eat and what you won't. And for most of them, it's a matter of consciousness, is the... Is the uh, is the living thing conscious of what's going on? Is is it suffering? And that demarcation between you know an animal who is conscious and unconscious, as is totally changed throughout history, and throughout cultures. And um, for instance, uh, now they're looking at uh, whether uh, well fish for once. You know, in the past it was just decided because they were so cold looking and, and expressionless that fish didn't have consciousness but new testing is showing that perhaps they do perhaps they can feel pain and but even that is being contested that's not a definite thing and then you know people are taking that further and looking at insects and I, I interviewed uh, scientists that work with insects and some of them really do believe that insects have consciousness and they have an intelligence that we can't even understand because they just work in different spheres than we do. And the same with plants. If you talk to uh, bio, uh, botanists, a lot of the new uh, brilliant botanists believe that plants have elevated intelligence that we can't even begin to understand because we don't speak the same language. Uh, they know for sure that plants absolutely know when they're being eaten, living plants. They send out chemicals 
to warn their neighbors uh, of you know danger ahead, and they send out chemicals that summon insect bodyguards to ward off um, predators. The predators, yeah. and so the, you know these are intelligent beings that want to live. They have what I call want to live, don't want to die skills that are very developed. And in fact, uh, if you look at history of philosophy, uh, Eastern religions have always considered all living beings to be sentient. In other words, to have consciousness and feelings. And only Western culture do we have these demarcations, these definite demarcations. You know. Uh, these beings have consciousness, these beings do not have consciousness. And so that was fascinating to look at, um, to study. And uh, so it's really not true that um, we can say definitively these certain animals have feelings and suffer, and or these certain creatures and these do not. But that's still being studied and being... Um, you know, talked about and discussed. There's, and I found that to be fascinating. Well, you know, you've compiled a, a really great resource. Uh, I've read a large number of books, and I've never read one quite like yours, which really comprehensively and exhaustively. After all, it took you six years to write this book. I mean, it's not a small amount of time, and that's why I love reading books because there's so much. Typically, if it's well written and the author is really knowledgeable and committed to the subject, as you obviously are, that there's so much information in there. I mean, geez, for a small amount of money, you're able to capture all those years of wisdom compiled into a few pages. So the, the, the key point for your book, though, is if anyone who is a vegan or knows someone who's a vegan, I, I couldn't encourage them more strongly to read this book. It's, in my mind, there's just no question it is an absolute must-read if you're a vegan. Or you're interested in this topic, and you're, or you're considering it. You need to look at all angles and be objective, and not blinded by some of the uh, emotions involved with this, which is easy to get caught up on. Because I mean, animals are so darn cute. <laughs> why would you want to kill an animal? And that's why most of us become vegans or vegetarians. We love animals, and so I undertook this in-depth research and investigation six years because I needed to know personally why do I need to eat animal food when I don't want to and so it was a journey for me and it became very very clear all the missing what are called carny nutrients mm -hmm. that are uh, in animals that are not in plants including carnosine, carnitine, taurine uh, you know just all kinds of them that are in there and they're still discovering them and that's another really important this point I'd like to make that nutrition science is still in its infancy mm -hmm. uh, researchers are still discovering new, new nutrients and uh, including nutrients that are found only in animals and they will continue to discover them and so uh, uh, one uh, vegan uh, researcher, Dr. Winston Craig, uh, agrees that this is a non-historical diet and there are simply um, there are simply too many uh, unknowns and too many unstudied people, too little research to make any kind of definitive conclusion that veganism is healthy and uh, prevents disease. And this is a, a vegan saying this. So I think that everyone needs to take a look at that and be and be a little more objective. I don't want to eat animals. I have found it has made a huge, enormous difference in my health and uh, probably in my longevity longevity because uh, the research, including the two Seventh-day Adventist studies that vegans love to cite, if you look at those closely, which I did, I went digging deep into those studies what I found out is that this, those studies, as many studies, define vegetarianism in a very broad way. It includes included fish eaters, it included dairy eaters, it in, even included people who ate red meat once a, a week. And so they could, with that definition of vegetarianism, they can come out with headlines that say, vegetarians live longest lives. 
uh, longest lives of all people. But when you dig deep, their definition of vegetarianism is not quite what uh, people think. It's very broad, and this is true in many of the uh, much of the research I studied. And until they all use the same definition of a vegetarian, you know, they're essentially useless in defining why it's good to eat a vegetarian diet. And of course, research on veganism hasn't even begun. There have been some small studies, uh, non-conclusive results. Um, and so this really is, uh, you know, they, vegans are plunging into the unknown. It's a, it's a very little study diet. We will not know the health uh, effects for several generations. And those people, those future vegans, believe me, will be studying that health data very carefully data which today's vegans uh, don't have available to them. So let's just go over some of those things that we appear to know from the science and uh, we've already reviewed one of them which is the DHA and an argument that many vegetarians or vegans will use is that well I'm getting it from flaxseed or chia seeds and that's an omega-3 called ALA uh, which is an 18 carbon fat uh, then needs to be converted to D, uh, EPA which is a 20 carbon then a 22 to e DHA and that conversion does not go well. Uh, it's well, I, th I think in most people it's well under 1% that you're going to get ALA or the DHA and you're, there's no way you can eat enough ALA to make that. Even though some staunch vegans like Dr. Michael Greger, and I actually emailed him on this is to find out the science or what he thinks the biggest conversion. He says, oh, it's 8 to 10%. So he sends me this, I said, send me this study that shows that. I look at it, it was like they gave 250 milligrams one dose radioisotope labeled in, in this bizarre food matrix that they gave them, and they they measured that. It was not at all what you would experience in real life. Exactly. So th th they use these flawed, fatally flawed studies to to support their recommendations. So from my perspective, if you're if you're using ALA, I mean you got to change this. You need real DHA, and I I don't think the science is out to out yet to prove that DHA from marine algae is going to be a substitute. I think you really need to eat fish. That's to me the most important. But then there's the others like you mentioned. I think number two would probably be vitamin B12 which you can get by with for a few years but after about six, seven years your liver stores are going to be exhausted and you can have very serious neurodegenerative diseases. Even as, And there's large numbers of documented cases of blindness from B12 deficiency and, and other neurological disorders. So that's a big, but maybe you can take it from there because you mentioned carnosine as being one uh, and some of the other, some of the, some of the amino acids like taurine. So, because uh, I think you did a really nice job in the book of uh, expanding on that. Oh, thank you. Um, first, I'd like to say that one of, another main uh, point in my book is beware vegan research conducted by vegans. Okay, they are, are looking for a certain outcome um, that, as you found out, you know, isn't really there. Um, the conversion rate for DHA is extremely low, and the same for uh, all the other omega-3 fatty acids. Uh, they can eat flax seeds all, all they want, but the conversion rate for most is 20 to 55 percent, I believe it is. Very low conversion rate, and in infants, it's 30 percent. So infants are also not getting their long-chain fatty acids, EPA and DHA. And um, the, the seaweed and algae, uh, you know, like you say, we don't know yet. These are new products, and uh, many doctors believe that it's just not the same as you get from fish. Yeah, um, and the reason for that, there's probably, when you buy a... Uh, when you eat fish, it's not just DHA. It's a whole balance of a variety of different fats for, with a wide range. Some of them are maybe 26, 28, 30 carbon chain fats. Mm -hmm. And it's this mixture, predominantly DHA the most important. That's the one that's in our brain primarily, 60%. Mm -hmm. But but those support, that supporting matrix is what's required to get the maximum benefits. And who knows what other variables that oh. we have not even been discovered yet that makes the critical difference. So to, to, I think it's a fallacy to conclude that you, you can choose to eat marine-based algae DHA. <laughs> I mean, who's eating? I mean, we eat it indirectly, but we don't eat it as a human food. I mean, it's never been done in human history. Mm -hmm. I agree with you completely. Um, what I say in the book, I say it very uh, 
emphatically is synergy, people, synergy. We do not know all the cofactors and, and micronutrients in our food and how they interact and how, uh, you know, you need this precise coenzyme to accept the, the food in your body. And it's a very complicated science that we are only beginning to understand. And to say that algae equals fish, you know, we don't know that. That will not be known probably for, again, until we get the health outcomes of vegans uh, in generations to come. You have to look at all the cofactors. It's, it's incredibly complicated. And so these vegan eggs they're making in Silicon Valley, I would be very wary of those. First of all, the idea is to get more protein in the vegan diet. Well, they have about one or two grams of protein, very low in protein. Mm -hmm. And uh, they've taken out all the cholesterol, which actually uh, we do need cholesterol in our diet. Uh, mm -hmm. Some people who um, are too low in weight, uh, it's been shown that they need to eat cholesterol to get the cholesterol levels back up. And we need saturated fat, too. And we need saturated Saturated fat, yes, yeah, which is only in animals. Which is, more fortunately and thankfully and gratefully, the studies in meta-analysis have been done, and, and there's a slow emerge and shift in consciousness in the medical, traditional, conventional, or conventional medical community about this topic, that they're accepting that saturated fat is indeed essential for, for a healthy diet. It's critical, and, you know, our ancestors ate saturated fat all the time in, in the, in the grass-fed uh, animals that they pastured and um, it's I'm glad that this myth has been dispelled very glad yeah it's in the process it's not yet so for the the ADA American Dietetic Association which has a new name but formerly ADA uh, made a recent transition to promoting a plant-based diet based upon primarily the fact that two of their experts were vegans and were insiders and able to promote this position. So can you expand on that? Uh, sure. The ADA position paper, which came out in 2009, recommending a vegetarian and a vegan diet to all people of all ages, uh, from infancy to old age, uh, if you do some more digging, as journalists love to do, it was co-authored by two people. One was a vegetarian and one was a vegan. And, um, in fact, uh, the vegetarian belongs to a, uh, a denomination that encourages the spreading of vegetarianism uh, to, you know, across the world. So my question was, why weren't these two authors tagged for conflict of interest? You know, uh, they're recommending this to the whole world of all ages. And you'll find this quote, uh, it's about nine lines, about... Uh, why anyone can eat a vegetarian vegan diet in almost every vegan book. They love to quote this. And, um, you know, there's some serious flaws in, in their research. First of all, I looked at their uh, sources. They had, I can't remember if it was 100 or 200 sources. I could find only 17 in all those sources that were exclusive to vegans. You cannot take vegetarian. Uh, research and apply it to vegans. I'm sorry, it just doesn't work. There are too many missing nutrients in a vegan diet that are present in a vegetarian diet. And so, um, you know, uh, I wish the vegans themselves would not just read vegan blogs and websites and uh, recommendations from other vegans. They need to look at science uh, research. From. They need to read your book. Yeah, yeah, non-biased sources. And they need to read my book, which will tell them everything they want to know about the history and philosophy. And, and that's not an inflated claim, I can assure you. I read a lot of books. I read hundreds and hundreds of health books, and that's not, that's not an inflated claim either. That's I have. Mm -hmm. And this, I've never read a better book that describes that than yours. So it's, okay. you know, I, I highly endorse that as, as a position. So... I, I think we've, we've summarized a lot of the good points in your book, and if you're interested, then certainly read the book for, for more details. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not opposed to vegetarianism. 
by Pythagoras' definition, I am a vegetarian. Yes, I mean, I, I, I eat very small amounts of animal protein, mm -hmm. uh, mostly fish, like six anchovies a day many times, and sometimes I'll have, and some fish roe, I have an ounce of fish roe, which I think is one of the healthiest foods on the planet, from wild Alaskan salmon. Mm -hmm. And uh, occasionally I'll have some meat. I have no problems eating meat, chick healthy chicken or non-CAFO beef. No problems with that, but it's not a regular source of my diet. I don't think it really should be for many people, but it shouldn't be excluded uh, because yeah. there are incredible nutrients. And, and healthy eggs are another great source, too. I have those regularly. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah, so, but, you know, and butter. So, you know, otherwise I'm eating a 100% vegan diet with those without those right. foods. But most of that, 85 90%, 95% of it is plant-based. So yeah. I think there's tremendous value in a plant-based approach. No, you cannot argue that. No, I mean, it's, I, I don't argue that. Uh, plants are the best. They are fabulous and if you need them yes then but you need that those tiny bits of animal uh, right. in your diet to get the missing nutrients and plants and if you look at the most lauded diet in the world the Mediterranean diet uh, which by the way they were doing a, a long-term study which they ended early in 2013 because the benefits were so enormous that they felt it was unethical to deprive the the control group of the benefits of the Mediterranean diet, which is mostly plants. Yes, yes. But they have uh, they have limited fish, limited red meat, limited dairy, so they're getting all the the carny nutrients that they need. They're getting the nutrients they need from animals and the nutrients they need from plants. It's a complete diet. It's been named, you know, one of the best diets in the world, and it is historically validated for thousands of years and um, many, many generations that this diet confers long-lasting health and long life on these people. The vegan diet is not validated and that's what we need to, uh, to work on, uh, getting those research studies done so that future vegans will know what they're up against. Yeah, so hopefully your book will be a great start in that direction. And again, Vegan Betrayal is available in any bookstore or online at Amazon. It's a great resource, and I want to thank you for taking six years of your life to compile this, this information and to really take the journey so that and learn by yourself so that and, and take the time to share this with others so they don't have to suffer like you did. I mean, that's the beauty of, of written literature is that we can learn from others. And, you know, your book offers a perfect opportunity to do that. So I want to thank you for writing it. Thank you. Thank you for having me here today.